Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Special episode 4, the 8th of September 1943, from infamy to resistance. This episode, in theory, should be part of the regular episodes, the ones that follow a chronological order of Italian history. However, I felt it was important to deal with this topic now for two reasons. First of all, I don't know if my podcasting career will reach that far, and if it does, it won't be for a couple of years. Secondly, this weekend was the 75th anniversary of the 8th of September 1943, and as time goes by, more and more of the protagonists of those moments in history are disappearing, their voices no longer to be heard, except in recordings. It is our task, as lovers of history, and with an understanding of the importance of history, to keep their voices alive and strong. As I record this, it is Saturday the 9th of September 2018. This morning my family and I went for a bike ride into town. There was an event going on. We arrived a bit late to find a large group of people in one of the main squares of the city, sitting or standing in a semicircle around a German-sounding speaker, another presenter and the most captivating of the group an elderly woman of 90 years of age. The mic was passed to her for her final considerations, they had all already spoken by that time, and she moved the crowd by thanking them for their warmth and attention. At her age, she said, she had lost her husband and her siblings and was now the only one of her generation left in her family. Her name is Giovanna Quadreri. But... In another life, in another time, she had a different name, Libertà, Liberty, and she wasn't just Giovanna, she was a staffetta, a sort of scout for the partisan movement. The teenage girl was responsible for moving between the Apennines and the city, a distance of up to 70-80 kilometres, often on foot, to take messages to resistance members under the noses of the fascists and Nazis, who in theory wouldn't suspect a young girl. She even participated in an attack on the Nazi positions in Bottega, a small town near Reggio Emilia, with the job of bringing the wounded back to safety and marking the positions of the dead for burial. The reason we were all there was the commemorations for the 8th of September 1943, the day in which the armistice between Italy and the advancing allies was announced, ending one phase of the war for the country, but at the same time plunging Italy into a chaos that would last for another year and a half. American General Dwight E. Eisenhower was growing impatient. The armistice with the Italian government had been signed on the 3rd of September. The head of the government was Pietro Badoglio, since Benito Mussolini had been deposed by the Grand Fascist Council on the 25th of July. 
Although the date for the announcement of the armistice was set for the 12th of September, Eisenhower could no longer stand the dithering of the inactive Italian government. And so, at 6.30pm, Eisenhower from Algiers made the announcement himself. This is General Eisenhower. The Italian government has surrendered unconditionally to these armed forces. The hostilities between the armed forces of the United Nations and those of Italy cease immediately. All Italians who now act to help eject the German aggressor from the Italian soil will have the assistance and support of the United Nations. This sent the Italian government into a panic, and it quickly convened. After some disagreement among those who wished to buy time, those who wished to fight with the Germans and those who wished to fight with the Allies, it was pointed out that there was nothing left to do, since the announcement had already been made. So, at 7.45pm, the announcement was also made by Marshal Badoglio. The Italian government, having recognized that it is impossible to continue the uneven fight against the overwhelming adversary force, with the intention of avoiding further and more serious disasters for our nation, has asked General Eisenhower, head commander of the Allied Anglo-American forces, for an armistice. The request has been accepted. Consequently, any act of hostility against the Anglo-American forces by the Italian forces must cease everywhere. However, they will react to any other attack from any other source. The key passage in this announcement is, however, they will react to any other attack from any other source. That was all anybody had to go on. They would react, but in what way? To whom? Under whose orders? The problem that the government now had to deal with were the safety of the Italian people and the safety of the Italian soldiers. There were about a million Italian troops stationed in Italy against around 400,000 German troops with eight Wehrmacht divisions in the north and six in the centre and south of the country who were a lot better equipped and more effective than the Italian troops. The Allies, after taking Sicily, had already gained a foothold in Reggio Calabria and with Operation Avalanche had also set sights on Salerno. Overseas, the Italian troops were around 230,000 in France and Corsica, 300,000 in Yugoslavia and another 300,000 in Albania and Greece, as well as around 53,000 in the Aegean Islands. All in all, around 2 million men, who, on the night between the 8th and 9th of September 1943, were completely forgotten and abandoned by the Italian government, and the king, who, faced with the task of saving their nation and their people and their soldiers, decided to concentrate on saving themselves. With requests for clarification and orders coming in from all over, the only man who put in any more work that night was the propaganda minister who informed the newspapers to publish the armistice declaration with mourning colours, trying not to be too critical of the Germans.
General Giacomo Carboni wrote out an order to the Italian troops not to allow themselves to be disarmed, but he didn't make the order executive because, he claimed, he could not transmit the order without the approval of the Prime Minister, who he could not find. Prime Minister Badoglio, in that moment, was perhaps ten meters away from Carboni, in the same building, sleeping soundly. The plan of the government for the moment was simply to sleep, lay low, and hope that the Germans would go away. Surprisingly, the Germans didn't just go away, and when news reached the city that the 3rd Panzergrenadier Division was on the move, everybody was woken and preparations were made for the royal family and the government to leave the city. The Prime Minister, when asked what he would do, said that he would also leave, and he left the Interior Minister, Umberto Ricci, in charge, while Vittorio Palma was to become the Commander-in-Chief of the Defence of Rome, but he could not be found. The royal family and the senior members made their way across the country, heading for Pescara. On the way there, they passed close to where Mussolini was being held prisoner, but didn't really spare him a thought. Prince Umberto had a moment of regret about leaving his people and asked to return to the city with Badoglio. His father answered that he was doing his constitutional duty and obeying the will of his government. He repeated the same to Carlo Ruspoli, a flight squadron commander, who had asked him if he did not consider his escape rather lacking in dignity. It was a version of an answer whose heavy sound would resonate through the halls of history from one of humanity's worst chapters. I was only following orders. In the end, the party decided not to take a plane, firstly because the Queen was not too fond of flying, and secondly because the pilots were looking rather mutinous. The decision was made to head for Brindisi, which was by now behind Allied lines by ship. When Badoglio left, he was given a salute as duty required, but when he held out his hand, no one shook it. When he was asked for orders, he simply said that the soldiers could leave when the Germans arrived, but failed to order the plane south to safety, missing the last opportunity to give some minimal aid to his collapsing country. Meanwhile, the Italian troops started to do what they had been left to do, dying the first were the crewmen of the battleship Roma, which was sunk by a raid of Junker bombers. Of the 1,849 sailors aboard, only 600 were rescued. After some initial hesitation due to disagreement between Rommel, who saw Rome as too complicated to take and to keep, and Kesselring, who instead wanted to occupy the city, the Germans were in action. What remained of the Italian government convened, but when false news of German troops entering the city came, they quickly disappeared, leaving only an 82-year-old man called Enrico Caviglia to deal with the situation. Caviglia, a general, moved by his sense of duty and a burning hate for Badoglio, started a quick inspection of the military situation of the city. 
Despite the great courage shown by some of the Italian troops in initial skirmishes, as well as that of the citizens who had come out to join them, and despite the fact that the anti-fascist forces had convened at 2.30, forming the Comitato di Liberazione Nazionale, the CLN, the National Liberation Committee, and proposed through their envoy to the government Bonomi to arm the citizens, Marshal Caviglia considered the defence of the city futile and sought to agree with Kesselring. Perhaps in the end this could have been a good choice. Resisting could have meant the destruction of the ancient city. The agreement was that the Italian troops, all except four battalions of the Piave division who would stay behind to help the police with public order, would hand in their weapons and be allowed to leave with honours. The Germans would occupy the EIAR, the Italian Public Radio Service, as well as the phone line infrastructure and the German embassy. A German military detachment was later added to the agreement. This was the end of any attempt at defending Rome. The battalions of the Piave lasted for a while and even skirmished with the German troops when it became clear that they were intent on occupying quite a lot more than what had been decided in the agreement. However, in time, desertion started among their ranks, reaching peaks of 80% in the 58th Infantry. The government continued to meet on the 11th, the 12th and 13th with dwindling numbers until on the 13th only Caviglia, Sodice, Carbone and De Bono showed up. It was all futile anyway. Mussolini had been released, which meant that the Germans intended on setting up a new fascist puppet regime. The Italian people with the armistice had hoped for an end to the long war. But in truth, another phase was beginning. The first part of this new phase was the Germans taking care of the Italian forces, making and breaking promises, taking prisoners and killing with peaks of cruel violence, such as the complete annihilation of the 31st Acqui Infantry Division in Cephalonia. The boost to the Nazi military effort in terms of weapons, vehicles, planes and ships was considerable. That is how the tragedy of the armistice unfolded. A potentially great country, abysmally governed, betrayed by its rulers, which some would say has also been a problem in Italy in more recent times. What about the Italian soldiers and the people in the aftermath of the 8th of September? Well, they had three choices really. One, join the Germans or the fascists of the new regime of the Republic of Salò. Two, keep your head down and hope that the Allies would make it quickly up the peninsula. Or three, put your life at stake for the freedom of your country and join the resistance movement, something that could perhaps help give the country some sense of pride in those dark, dark times. Many chose the latter giving rise to what by some is called the Italian Civil War, but others call La Resistenza. That brings me back to where we started, to Giovanna, also known as Libertà, Freedom. She made her choice 
as a teenager, at an age when I was choosing which video game I would prefer to have for my birthday. She chose to risk her life to help free her country from the fascist regime and the Nazi occupation. Therefore, I would like to dedicate this episode to her. I almost want to add a very cheesy, long may she live, but at 90 she feels lonely and tired. What I can say is, may her voice live on and be heard for a long time to come, so that we may remember, and most of all, learn in our own way to resist. As always, thanks very, very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely little band of Patreon donors, Top Donor Sen, then Shelby, Stephen, Vincenzo, Benjamin, Jeff, Sean, Preston, Roberta, and thanks very much to new donor JW. If you want to get in touch, remember you can send an email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. On that same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media, which now also includes Twitter at the handle, I believe you say, at A History of Italy. Thanks very much again, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.